Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 232. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Ayelet Ronen. Thanks so much for having me, Kip. I've been a big fan of yours and of the podcast, so I'm excited to be here. Well, it's great to have you to discuss a question I think more of us could discuss in our daily lives, especially in the West, in consumer culture. Do we own our belongings or our stuff, or does our stuff come to own us? And this was one of several ideas you proposed as possible episode topics. And to me, it's a great question because it is straightforward and at the same time philosophical. And I think, again, to reference our culture, a necessary question to ask because for some of us, it makes a great deal of difference. You could save some money by buying fewer or possessing fewer objects. And that money could be used for your health or for experiences you haven't yet had. And so I do believe that this question, and I hope the conversation we will have about it, has tangible and real-world implications. I appreciate that you started with this notion that our belongings are costing us. And I want to extend that to more than just the cost of buying those goods, but also the cost of storing those goods. A lot of people use storage facilities, which cost money to maintain, and you're not using any of those possessions in, in any regular fashion. But I'm also conscious of the fact that I'm using my apartment as a storage for all of my possessions. And this particularly came to mind recently when my wife and I got our new lease for this upcoming year. And it went up a bit, which we were expecting, but it went up more than what we had anticipated. And so we started to talk about, well, at what point are we paying more than we're willing to pay to store our possessions here and to live here? At what point are we paying more for rent than we're willing to pay? And at what point is it worth it to us to look for somewhere else that might be cheaper? But to me, the idea of having to pack up all of my possessions and move them somewhere else is more mentally and physically taxing. And so I end up spending more money to store those possessions than I would otherwise. And with your reference to emotional and mental taxation, I think that's another impact that our objects often have on us, that we have to worry about how they're doing. Many of us buy cases for our phones or our computers because we want to, very understandably, keep them safe. And so I think there is an underlying anxiety for many of us that these expensive objects we have will break. A lot of us have very painful experiences on the phone with customer service trying to maintain or repair objects that we have. And so in that regard, I do think there is a reversal of ownership, that we spend hours, often hours we don't want to, maintaining objects that exist supposedly to make our lives more convenient. Exactly. And we also spend a lot of time organizing those things and storing those things and decluttering those things. So your listeners might be familiar with Marie Kondo, who is the creator of this concept called the KonMari method. So basically, it's a way of decluttering your life where you bring all of your similar type of possessions together and go through each thing one by one, touching it to make sure that it sparks joy. And if it doesn't, you get rid of it. Now, this process for a lot of us who have amassed a lot of material possessions would take a really long time. And to maintain it also takes time. Any new thing that enters your life needs to have a home. And the time that you spent putting those things in their place consumes a lot of our time. And I think about what we could be spending our time doing that isn't that. And so my mind goes to this anecdote that I read in a book about minimalism recently, where a father was spending his Saturday cleaning the garage while his son kept asking him to play with him outside. And it became apparent that it would take all day for him to clean out the garage. And that meant that he lost an entire day of time he could have spent with his son. 
And so I really appreciate your point about the time it takes to maintain our physical possessions. And even a sub bullet point about time again that I hadn't really been thinking about prior to this episode. I'm reminded of those of us who really enjoy shopping. And for me, it's a very exhausting experience. And I try to do it as rarely as possible because I don't feel like I need that many things. I enjoy one or two pairs of jeans and maybe a pair of dress pants. But to me, clothing is a prime example for many of us in which we own far more than we need or ever intend to wear. I'm actually really intrigued by objects like wedding dresses or other similar garments or possessions that only have one use. And before listeners think that I'm purely against them, a part of me, in practicality, doesn't fully appreciate the amount of space they take up in proportion to their cost or the number of times that they are used. But as I think has to be mentioned in this conversation, human beings are not robots. We have sentiment and emotional attachment, not only to people, but to various objects in our lives. And with your mention of Marie Kondo and her famous question, does it spark joy in reference to various objects or possessions? I would add, though I wouldn't erase her question, does this object or belonging help me tell or recall a story? Does this object make me capable of something I otherwise couldn't do? Maybe I don't need a razor blade to shave, but it makes shaving a whole lot easier. It may not spark joy, but there is a type of necessity to this object in reference to the life I'd like to live or the appearance I would like to have. So clothing is a really important point to raise here. So I really appreciate that you brought that up, Kip. I would imagine that those of us, at least those who live in Western cultures, own way more clothing than we could ever use. And it's interesting to think about why that is. And I think it's for a number of reasons. First, clothing doesn't really go bad or doesn't expire. So we end up amassing wardrobes that increase in size and never really decrease in any meaningful ways. Secondly, we're constantly assaulted with advertising telling us that we need to buy the newest um, styles or the newest garments. People may be familiar with this concept of fast fashion. They're really encouraging you to use clothing as though it's disposable, even though it really isn't. And so we end up acquiring a lot and accumulating a lot. And then I think you were starting to get at this, which is that we can often use clothing to represent our style. And so people like to have a variety of different things or clothing that really allows you to showcase your creativity. So it's tied to your identity in that way. And it's also tied to your body image. This is especially true for women. I'm not quite sure for men, but the idea that something in your wardrobe might not fit anymore, it requires you to go to possibly a dark place in order to acknowledge or accept that it may never fit again and therefore dispose of it. I think what happens is that a lot of women, in order to avoid confronting those feelings, end up accumulating a lot of clothes and refusing to get rid of things, even though they may never wear them again, they may never fit, because that would require them accepting that their body may not be what they want it to be. And so you had referenced my relationship to clothes, which I'm excited to get to share with your listeners. So recently, as part of my minimalism journey, I decided to pare my wardrobe down to just 100 items. Now, I haven't gotten all the way there. I'm about 120 or so, but it's something that I'm aspiring to. And this is after several different times of purging my wardrobe. So at the time when I decided that this was something that I really wanted to do, I counted my items of clothing and I was at about 300. So by now I've reduced my wardrobe at least by a third, if not by a fifth. 
And when I mention this to people, I get a pretty strong reaction, especially with women. I think men are used to having fewer types of clothing and therefore they have fewer actual items of clothing. I've been doing this for about a month now, maybe a little bit longer. So it might be a little early to really say, but I've actually found that it frees up so much of my time. I don't spend as much time thinking about what am I going to wear today or what's going to look good or what's going to fit good because I've narrowed it down to really only the things that I know fit me well and that I enjoy wearing and that I get excited to wear. And I do want to point out that some people might think that 100 items is quite a few pieces of clothing, actually. But in my project, I've included things like underwear and socks, pairs of socks, not individual socks um, in that number. So you could see how that number might add up quite quickly. Now, that last comment you made to me is especially interesting. I'll let the audience in on a secret that you and I had a prior recording of this conversation. We felt we could do better before this current episode that they are listening to in which you had made other clarifications and qualifications to, I would say, soften your words. And one of those in our prior conversation was a reference to the idea of our objects owning us as radical or extreme. And my remark to you then, which I'd like to repeat now, is that I wonder if you had made those remarks because we live in such a consumerist culture where it's almost our religion. People in a theocracy or in an authoritarian government don't feel particularly comfortable speaking out against the state religion or the supreme leader of their nation or state. You're confronting power. You're confronting a norm with which a lot of us implicitly or explicitly agree. And so I find it really interesting in this case that while you didn't use terms like radical or extreme to soften the blow of your words, you did clarify what these hundred objects are and how you reached that rationale. I, for one, am, of course, glad that you did so, so the audience can understand. But I do wonder how some people will hear this conversation and if some people might scoff, because I think both you and I fall within some spectrum of seeing how objects can, if not own us literally, cause our lives to be a lot more cumbersome. I do think that in the society that we live in, minimalism is a pretty radical concept. But I do have to say that recently it seems like it's much more in vogue. It seems that the more things become easily accessible to us, the less as a society we start to feel like we actually need to own them. So one concept that I've heard about that I've really grown to love that's discussed by these two men who call themselves the minimalists is this idea that we could actually use stores as our storage units. So possessions are so easy to get a hold of these days. For example, if you have an Amazon Prime account, you can easily order something and have it arrive to your door within two days. Many of us live close enough to a store that we could drive to where we could acquire many of the basic needs that we might have. What's the need to store those possessions in our house when they are so easy to come by? I'm happy you bring up economic shifts and possibilities because it ties a thread through a number of points I want to come back to one of which you inspired in your discussion of clothing. I wrote down as a point I wanted to come back to this idea of rental, and I think a lot about rental of a suit or a tuxedo, and how much emphasis is placed in owning a suit. And we often hear remarks like, the clothes make the man. I think there's absolutely status that we tie, a point that a kindergartner could make, in the clothing that we own. And that's not revolutionary or important, but I do think in our ownership of things, we do it because we see it as a sign of how far we've come. Many of us might even rationalize the economic reasons of doing so. You reference the minimalist's idea of using a store as a place of storage and perhaps not purchasing that thing. And in my mind, rental, though it may not be more cost effective, represents a trend away from ownership. 
How many of us would have owned a car 20 years ago where now we use ride-sharing services like Uber or Lyft? How many people know that they're only going to wear a suit once or twice a year and so they rent those clothes when the time comes? There were friends of mine in college who wouldn't purchase a fridge for their apartment but would rent it semester by semester. In a lot of ways, I think ownership often burdens us with things we only need in certain eras of our lives or for certain very specific seasons. I'm sure there are people out there who rent ski or other equipment for winter activities, and to me that makes the most sense. You had brought up gender, and while I can't speak to the female experience, though I would love listeners' thoughts on gender and ownership, as a man, I don't feel particularly pressured to own a lot of things. I do feel like there are possessions society expects me to own, like a set of tools or other things we might associate with masculinity, but frankly, I care more about practicality, and while I'm not a full minimalist, I don't want to own many things. There are, though, exceptions to this. You and I have been rather critical, I think fairly so, of how objects can own us. And at this point, I think of digital streaming services like Netflix or Hulu. There are some movies I don't want to watch more than once or twice, so I'm fine streaming them if they're available. But there are others that I really want to support. I want those companies to have the profit of my full purchase because the film was that great. So I'm willing to spend $20 or $30 on a disc so that I can watch it, indeed on physical media, when I want to and in the comfort of my own home rather than streaming it. And I think there are cases digitally that make ownership a lot more nuanced in the 21st century. I think you're right that younger generations tend to need to own fewer things and tend to rely more on renting things or borrowing things in the examples that you gave, like ride sharing or streaming. Although I would like to point out that borrowing movies and borrowing books is not a new concept, right? Libraries have been around for a long time, but it, sometimes it feels like our generation is just recently discovering that. But I think there's one area in which even our generation, younger generations, is continuing to struggle with, and that's with sentimental items. We are gifted things or we ourselves accumulate things that remind us of our childhood or of times past or even of experiences that we weren't a part of, like things passed down to us from our grandparents. And you made the point that a lot of our objects may tell a story. And I think that's definitely true for sentimental items. But people seem to have a really difficult time letting those items go. And I wonder if you have thoughts about why that might be the case. I absolutely do. And I'm glad you bring it up. I think at the end of the day, our fear of change is a really strong motivator. I think it's one reason that we don't let go of objects. And I think it reveals something interesting about human identity because a lot of us feel very attached to the things that we use, maybe our bed or the car that we drive every day. But at the end of the day, your identity is not what you wear. It is not what you own. And I won't deny the power of marketing and other forces in convincing us that that is the case. That if you own this cell phone or have this lipstick, your life will be happier, you will be more attractive, etc., etc., but at the end of the day, when we do get rid of our objects, be they sentimental or attached to some cultural value or idea, maybe a power or a sense of authority or influence, we feel lesser without them. And I think that's largely an illusion because the things we own are really more like visitors that don't have a say in their visit. They're just here. They're not controlling us, but we chose to let them in. And I think the power that we have to radically shift our lives in terms of possessions is somewhat terrifying to consider. So many of us don't consider it. We just accumulate objects because that's easier. 
It's often said that the act of destruction is infinitely easier than that of creation, that it takes a few seconds to destroy something that could have taken hours to build. And when it comes to accumulation of objects, I think there's a different framework at play. It's incredibly easy to accumulate things, even things that don't mean anything to you. But to get rid of them requires that you look at yourself in a mirror, as Marie Kondo might encourage you to do, and really ask yourself, what do I get out of this? Why do I have this object? And I don't think most of us do that in our daily lives because there is a vulnerability there. I'm also glad that you referenced things that are gifted to us. Because when I think of sentimental things, I think of pictures I've taken, maybe a poem that I wrote, or an interaction I had with someone that was captured in some way. But when other people give us things they want to be sentimental, there's really tricky value attached to that. You and I both have a coworker who often receives a lot of gifts, and he stockpiles them, for lack of a better word, on his desk. And while I won't speak for him, it's really interesting to observe his desk because a number of possibilities exist in my mind to explain his ocean of belongings. I think a lot of people care about him, and so that's one reason he might have a lot of gifts. But I also think he doesn't want to be rude and get rid of those gifts which represent a really visible declaration of friendship and connection. And if someone returned to his desk a day later and said, wait, where was that candle that I gave you? There's an awkward conversation there. And so I think belongings that have two or more people attached to them in terms of emotional connection become even harder to get rid of. I can only imagine, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, being in a marriage, in a life that you're building together with another person, and the objects that you come to own or share, how hard it might be to get rid of some of them. Maybe one of you is more emotionally attached than the other, and while they would have no problem throwing it out, to you it's incredibly significant and may even speak to a shared love language or a memory. I really appreciate that you bring up this tension that can sometimes happen between people who live together who have different attitudes towards their possessions. Thankfully, at least in my case, my wife has been really supportive and actually has been interested in getting rid of a lot of her possessions that don't bring her any value as well. But I have heard many situations where one person ties their sense of safety very strongly to their physical possessions and has a much harder time getting rid of things than their partner does. But I have noticed that my wife does struggle with gifts in particular. She spends a lot of time thinking about how the person might feel after they find out that she got rid of something that they gifted her. And it is a very difficult thing because gifts are a very common way in which we show affection for other people. And so that's been an area in which we've really had to discuss quite a bit. And I don't really have a good answer for when to keep something that someone gifted you and when to get rid of it. I've recently been erring on the side of getting rid of things, but I do worry what someone might think if they know that I got rid of something that they gave me. But on the flip side, there is the danger of what is happening with our coworker, where you then accumulate a lot of things. You feel a lot of guilt associated with those things. And if you only then got rid of those things, you might feel a sense of relief. I would encourage our listeners going forward to think a little more carefully before gifting a physical possession to someone. You may feel really positively about gifting them that possession, but it may not necessarily be something that they want in their life. And with your encouragements to the audience and how they might reconsider things in their lives going forward, we're nearing the end of the episode. But a few points I'd like to make before we officially conclude. One is that I think at the core of this topic of ownership is something really essential to human nature that we bond with the world around us. We form sentimental attachment to skylines of cities we live in or to street signs that are bent at a certain angle. 
We may not always humanize these things, but we come to attach emotions, however faint or passing, to a lot of things in the world around us because to be human is, in many ways, to feel emotions towards the world that exists. And if you encounter something often enough, you start to form a sort of one-sided relationship with it. So I think the reason that some of our things can end up owning us, or at least overstaying their welcome or visit, as it were, is because, as we've now said several times, they're not just objects. We come to see them as something much greater than that. And I hope this topic, and people like Marie Kondo, serve to remind us that the objects around us are just that. We may be able to use them as tools, and indeed we may have experiences with them, but they are not more than that. It is our minds and our capacity for imagination, empathy, or personification that makes of these objects grandiose backstories and other things. And really, as was a lesson that I had to learn the hard way when a hard drive of mine failed, at least I'd like to believe the following, that the memories of ours are the things that we recall and not necessarily the things that trigger memories in us, though I won't deny the power of a sentimental object like a letter. And I would also say that while you and I might fall on a more critical side of ownership, that to live in a world and to form connections, I think especially in a consumer-leaning one, is often to experience these various obligations. If you'll allow me a metaphor, for someone who owns six houseplants, those are six obligations that they have to maintain. A bit of water, the proper sunlight and temperature to make sure that these otherwise helpless creatures stay alive. There is a degree of obligation, but I also think it's worth considering the trade-off. And so while many of us may own far more than we need, there are circumstances in which that sacrifice of time, maybe emotional labor or mental energy, is worth it because of the joy that possession brings maybe even once a year. Now the last point I'd like to come to, as you had mentioned prior to recording, is the idea of privilege. I had the experience of growing up in a rather large household where I had a lot of space, not only for possessions, but literally to be by myself when I wanted to be. And I think that experience of being able to accumulate possessions did not teach me to be Spartan or minimalist and also may not have taught me how to share properly. So privilege is absolutely relevant in conversations like this where many of us do not have large houses in which to store as much as we want to. And I think that might be for the best in certain cases, though those of us who don't have space might actually yearn for more than we currently enjoy. But there are ways in which we fill spaces in unhealthy ways, as we've touched on in this conversation, that I think, ironically, privilege and affluence can allow. The more you earn, the more resources you have doesn't necessarily mean you're using those resources better or in healthy ways, which I think is worthy of probably further discussion. We're also really privileged in the things that we have access to. So both you and I live in a pretty big city where we can easily, within 20 minutes, get to a store um, where we can buy most of the things that we need for our daily life. And maybe within half an hour, 45 minutes, we can get access to way more things than we could ever need. But there is a lot of privilege in that. And there are many parts of this country and definitely many parts of the world where that isn't the case. And so people need to use their possessions and store their possessions in different ways because they lack some of this access that we have. And that access is absolutely important to think about in a conversation like this. And before we formally conclude, what would you like our audience to think about after listening to this conversation? So our conversation has mostly been focused on physical possessions. And I would really encourage our listeners to think about 
things that they own that aren't physical, that are digital. So for example, those of us who own smartphones, how much do we think about how many apps we're downloading on those phones or how many photos we take and store on those phones? I would imagine that most of us do that somewhat mindlessly, but that ends up taking up a lot of our time when you're going through and hunting for the right app or hunting for the photo that you need. Those digital possessions, even though they're not taking up physical space in our life, it does take up space. And so I would encourage your listeners to think about the relationship they have with not only their physical possessions, but also their digital possessions. I've really appreciated being able to have this conversation with you, Kip, and I hope that your listeners have as well. But I do want to note that I feel like we've only just barely started to skim the surface. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about minimalism over the last few months. And if it's all right with you, I would like to offer some resources that they might be able to access through the show notes that will allow them to dive even deeper into these conversations. That sounds good to me. I encourage listeners to check the show notes on our website and there you'll find the resources that Ayelet is mentioning. I'd be really curious to know if any of you listeners did find this to be, if not a controversial initial question, do our objects end up owning us more than we own them? Is there a tug of war there or does it seem to some of you like a silly question that doesn't need to be asked? And lastly, are there certain categories of possessions or individual possessions about which some of you are unflinching? That if you were forced to pare down your belongings to 10 objects or 5 objects, that you would absolutely refuse to give up because of their value. I'd really love to hear about it. And I yell it. I'd like to thank you for coming on and discussing this today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. But of course, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and we're not the only people with possessions out there, so we'd really love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show as well as supporting us on Patreon, where in exchange for your support, you'll receive exclusive perks like bonus episodes. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.